now for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, five, or five. What is up, listeners? I am your host, ex-video store clerk, undiscovered screenwriter, and fellow listener, Jason Kleberg. And this is Force 5, a show where I force my guests to come up with a movie-themed top five list topic, and then we reveal our picks on air. Today's topic was a real joy to tackle. At some point in our conversation with screenwriter and author Michael Morisi, I referenced some feedback that I got from two different professional readers on what I believe is my best screenplay. The first reads, quote, From a viability perspective, Anglerfish could be seen as a hard project to successfully market to an audience. It can often feel like an edgy children's movie housed inside of a slow-burn Coen Brothers descended crime tale. End quote. Uh, that's exactly what I was going for. So thank you for that feedback. The second was a bit more kind, saying, quote, The brutality in which he executes his targets is as startling as it is entertaining, especially with the later understanding of his victims' identities. The action is penned in a strong, authorial voice that captures a cinematic mood reminiscent of the work of the Coen brothers. It inherits the style and substance of the Coen brothers' brand of storytelling through the eyes of a more diverse cast. Obviously, from these two readers alone, you can tell that I'm a huge Coen Brothers fan. They've been a huge influence on me in my writing as well. And um, I absolutely use their work as inspiration. They've created some of the most memorable characters ever to grace the screen. And I was honored that Mr. Maurice chose this topic so we could wax about our favorites just a bit. Now, before I get into that, last show's topic was top five LGBTQ characters, and we got a lot of interesting suggestions because the internet was not shy on telling us who we missed. Not in the top five. Did they get it right? Excuse my language. Okay. Hell no. <laughs> I can't believe. Who, who made that list? Who made that? That's blasphemous. Don't look at me. That's blasphemous. All right, Clemen Brugge said, Can you ever forgive me? The two central characters are gay in that film. Nancy Y says, Not a movie, but Omar from The Wire. I mean, look, if we were doing TV shows, I could have come up with a great list for TV show characters. Purple Zoinks said, Little Miss Sunshine. DJ said, The talented Mr. Ripley from 1999, main character Tom. They also said, uh, Characters in Mulholland Drive, Bound, and Monster. Plum Gum said, Tully, Charlize Theron's character is bi. And Reptilian Appeal said the character Kurt from the movie Skate Kitchen from 2018. I have not seen that film. Thank you for your suggestions. If you want to get in on the action, I post this question pretty frequently on Reddit, on Twitter, on Facebook, on the Cinematics Facebook page, and some of the other Facebook groups I'm a fan of. So um, yeah, if you want to get your comment read on the show, just participate in those threads. All right, on to today's review. This is for the 1988 film, Running on Empty. Jesse's records? Well, I'm afraid I lost his records. They gave them to me, and I know I packed them, but I just can't find them. Christine Lottie. There's no reason to think they're on to us yet, so stay calm. Judd Hirsch. Who are your parents, Ozzie and Harriet? Martha Plimpton. It's wonderful having a new name every six months. River Phoenix. 20 years ago, his parents protested the Vietnam War. I was wondering if Michael had ever mentioned anything to you about his old school. I'm a liar. My name isn't Michael. My parents are Arthur and Annie Pope. My God, Annie. 
why'd you throw it all away? You're in trouble with the FBI. We're moving base camp, kids. Cover your tracks. His whole life, he's been paying the price of their beliefs. Look what we're doing to these kids. They've been running their whole lives like criminals. You can't keep running away from something that you have nothing to do with. You deserve your own chance. I'm not letting him go because it's not safe. Aren't we supposed to question authority? You taught me that. Running on Empty is an unconventional family drama, a subgenre that I normally don't gravitate towards. I was unfamiliar with this one. It's not one that we had on the video store shelf when I worked there, but I saw it at Amoeba as I was digging through the uh, used Blu-rays, and I decided to pick it up on a whim because it starred River Phoenix. This is a film about the Pope family. Uh, Annie and Arthur, the parents, blew up a napalm factory or a a lab or something in the early 70s as part of a far-left militant organization to protest the war. The lab was supposed to be empty, but a janitor who was inside at the time was left paralyzed and blind, so the FBI has been hunting the couple ever since. At the time, their son Danny was two, and while they were on the run, they had another child named Harry. So the two kids have only known a life on the lam, switching towns and schools when the parents start to feel the heat, and they use a network of like-minded activists to get dental work and other necessary care done while pillaging the lost and found buckets at businesses in order to snag things like gloves and hats. These folks are used to leaving everything behind. In the first scene of the film, they needed to ditch their house and leave the family dog behind, saying, quote, he'll be fine, he'll find a home. It seems like something that would tear the kids up, especially the 10-year-old Harry, but he's oddly okay with it. And we find out why shortly after. He's just used to it. The family works as a unit, and it's worked well. It's kept the parents out of prison for 15 years. But as Danny starts to desire his own life, one with teenage normalities like a girlfriend and the possibility of college, things start to get a little bit messy. So the film starts, and I see that it's directed by Sidney Lumet, and I knew I was in good hands, but make no mistake about it, this was The River Phoenix Show. He plays Danny, the good-looking, whip-smart kid who's adapted his father's fortress mentality. He does everything he can to blend into the background, never bringing attention to himself. In his spare time, he practices the piano on a non-functioning practice board, the one thing he totes with him from town to town. This role earned him a Best Supporting Actor nod at the Oscars for his pained, extremely vulnerable performance. When his music teacher takes a very supportive interest in him, he meets his daughter Lorna, who goes to the same school, opening up the door to secrets that you know will eventually rear their ugly head. Both Judd Hirsch and Christina Lottie are amazing as the parents, and this is where the real dramatic tension happens. But it's not overt. It's simply the pair realizing that as long as they've been on the run, working odd jobs to survive and support their family, a time that they dreaded was finally here. There's a scene in which Arthur is reading the paper and Danny walks in late at night. He's not in trouble. He just sits down to talk. And at the end of a very short conversation, he asks his son, are you sleeping with her? And Danny simply replies, yes. And Arthur says, all right, head on up to bed. But that look in his eyes like, shit, tells us everything we need to know. Christine Lottie simply owns the last 15 minutes of this film with emotional moments with her son and her father. The film is extremely well-directed and subtle. The filmmaking doesn't get in the way, it just kind of lets us observe the rich characters. I've seen in reviews online that the film feels a bit long, and yes, that's true, but at the same time, I think it's important, because we start to get comfortable as the characters do in their new lives. And when it's time for them to drop everything and leave, it's as jarring for us as it is for them. But make no mistake, while the filmmaking might not be flashy, it's incredibly calculated and extremely powerful. 
If you need proof of this, there's a scene in which Danny invites Lorna, his new girlfriend, over for his mother's birthday dinner. Everything goes well, and after cutting the cake, they all dance in the kitchen together to James Taylor's Fire and Rain. But subtly, naturally, Danny and Lorna start slowly dancing together, migrating away from the rest of the family who's oblivious to the divide between them. There's an invisible line in the middle of that kitchen telling us, from this point, things can never go back to the way they were. This was a scene that was so beautifully done that I'm not ashamed to say I teared up, and it wouldn't be the last time that happened while watching Running on Empty. It's not a film with surprises. You pretty much know what's going to happen from the start. Like, Danny's going to go his own way, but you don't really know how. Will the parents end up in jail? Will Danny rebel and stay behind, or will his parents be the ones to leave him behind like the family dog they eschewed at the beginning of the film? This was a Warner Archive disc and unfortunately has no special features. It does look and sound good. The Blu-ray picture is the result of a new scan of Warner's motion picture imaging facility at 2K using an interpositive struck from the camera negative. An original answer print made on Eastman LPP low fade stock was used as reference for color correction, followed by cleanup for dirt, damage, and wear. Although there's not much other than the film to see here, I would really recommend it for this film alone. If you're into family dramas or just want to be reminded of what we lost when River Phoenix died so young, you should pick this up. That's Running on Empty from 1988. All right, let's take a second here to thank today's sponsor, Hudsucker Industries. Hudsucker Industries sits at the intersection of cutting-edge technology and children's laughter. And they're here with me today to promote their newest invention that's bound to take the world by storm, the hula hoop. Just give it a spin and do lots of tricks. Round the next called kill the buzzard. Round your waist, the natural. Slip it way down and do the knee knocker. It's easy to do the stork. Play war, see who can knock the hoop down first. The winner! It's fun to skip with your whammo hula hoop. Throw it away and it boomerangs right back. Flip it up and do kill the buzzard. It's easy, it's fun to keep them spinning round and round. They defy gravity. Buy yours today at all toy, drug, and department stores. Get one, get two, get more. And if gyration is too risque for you, check out their other new product, the Frisbee. It's the newest, fastest, flyest way to have fun in the sun. Hudsucker Industries, except no substitute. Welcome back to the Force 5 Podcast. Today, I've got Michael Marisi with me. He's a best-selling writer in both novels and comic books like Black Star Renegades and Burning Fields, and most recently wrote the film Revealer, which you can check out on Shudder right now. Michael, how are you today? Uh, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to have you on. Your movie's great. For those who, who are not familiar with Revealer, um, it's. I found a very claustrophobic, really uncomfortable single location genre film. For those people who haven't checked it out yet, tell us about what Revealer is uh, is all about. Yeah, yeah, happy to. So, um, Revealer is a, a movie we made like so many others during COVID. Uh, so, you know, it was made under certain <clears throat> excuse me uh, certain restrictions, uh, and a claustrophobia, as you said, is a great word. Um, that's a handy direction to go when you can only do so much in terms of space and, and character and everything like that. Um, but Revealer is about uh, two opposite women, um, a, a, a stripper and a, a religious uh, protester who gets stuck together in a peep show booth um, as the uh, apocalypse may or may not be 
uh, taking place um, outside the, uh, the 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 strip club establishment, and they have to work together and kind of bond and learn more about each other in order to uh, uh, you know overcome you know demons both uh, you know outside and you know inner demons as well. It doesn't get much opposite than that a, a stripper <laughs> and a religious zealot, you know, <laughs> being stuck in the same place. And it's got a couple of other things that I love. Uh, it's set in the 80s which is just one of the things that like whenever there's a movie set in the 80s tickles my fancy and then it's really got that like neon blue purple soaked look to it that i love too so if you're into genre films if you're into these like real kind of small scale stories check this out and it does have some surprises it's got some some great looks it's well i i won't even talk about um what I thought was the, the coolest scene because it's late in the movie, but go check it out. It's on Shutter right now. Now you wrote this film, Luke Boyce directed it. Right. Did it come out like you envisioned as you were as you were writing it? That's a great question. Um yes and no. I mean the the weird thing is, the interesting thing I should say about it is that like, you know, we everything happened on this movie so quickly, you know, like it's because of the conditions, like I mentioned, you know, we were in this position where um, we moved really rapidly and there was these moments like, is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen? Can it happen with the um, restrictions and, and doing it safely and all this kind of other stuff? So we were never quite sure. So there was there was so little time to really envision it <laughs> fully. Um, I got on set. I stayed. I, I went to set for for quite a bit to see uh, see it being filmed and and be part of it. And you know, once I sort of wrapped my head around what they were doing, you know, Luke uh, and the DP uh, Rob Stern, what they're doing visually, like it really started to come together in my mind, and I can see like what they were aiming for and the look and the feel. And once I kind of got a better sense of their like visual vocabulary it, it it became clear in my mind and then you know seeing the early cuts and the later cuts and the, to the final things seeing it take shape like it really did crystallize into what i think that i had a little bit in the script and definitely what luke had in mind when he was making it when he was directing it it's awesome yeah that's always i think uh, a writer's like you know, you put your work out there and then what happens with your work after that largely in most cases is not up to you. So that's that's cool that it at least, um, you know, kind of envisioned what you were what you were looking for. Oh, yeah. Many, many horror stories of that out there. <laughs> this, this definitely was not one of them. <laughs> that's good to hear. That's good to hear. Now, in addition to writing Revealer, you're also a, a novelist. You create graphic novels. We had uh, the second version of, or I guess the second volume of Barbaric hit recently. That that's out now, yeah. Uh, yeah, that just that just came out um, uh, about two weeks ago. But the uh, the catch uh, for it is released a little early, uh, and the catch is that it's only available in comic book shops. So it's not nice yet on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or places like that. That's that's not until March. Okay, cool. Well, for those who are not uh, well-versed with the barbaric world, why don't you tell us about uh, what barbaric is all about and then what we can look forward to in volume two here? Oh, boy. Uh, so <laughs> <clears throat> barbaric is about a, a barbarian uh, named Owen. And Owen uh, is cursed. Um, and his curse is that he always has to do the right you know, slash moral thing, which is a, which is a tricky thing for a barbarian to do. Um, 
given their appetites. Uh, and his his moral compass that he helps keep him on this path is uh, a sentient axe named Axe. Um, but the problem is that Axe, uh, when he when he uh, levels his uh, when Owen levels his justice and, and kills somebody or axes axes somebody, let's say. Uh, Axe gets drunk on blood and his morals begin to slide a little bit. <laughs> That's <laughs> so, a great <laughs> Yeah, so things get, you know, pretty chaotic pretty quick. It's a, you know, it's a fun take, I guess you could say, on a Conan story on this kind of classic, you know, even Elric, uh, you know, Robert E. Howard stuff, uh, pulpy fantasy that, uh, you know, really kind of strong in character and fun and tone and things like that. And yeah, in volume two, uh, Owen goes up with a with an old nemesis. He's 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 become friends with Soren, who's a witch. Who and he doesn't like witches because witches are the one who who cursed him. Uh, and he meets up with an old friend named Steel, who's become a vampire in the like eighty years since the la last time they they met they, that they had spoke. And they uh, they go after this old foe together. That that sounds like a great premise. You got to check out Barbaric. Volume one, you can pretty much find anywhere. Volume two right now, only available in comic stores. So go support your local comic shop and check that out. Uh, once it's available in March, is there a place like if somebody can't get to a comic shop to get it? Is there a place that's best for you that they buy it from? I don't think so. You know, I mean, I'm always happy when people get it. But uh, yeah, once it's available wide, you know, like March or it might be May, I've I think it's March, but you know, then they can, if they get it on Amazon or if they get it at their local bookstore, which is always, which is always uh, really nice, I think is, is, is great when people do that. Um, I know it's more difficult and sometimes not possible, um, right. but really anywhere. I mean, if people are reading it and supporting it in whatever way, I, I'm always just really, really glad for that and really grateful because there's, there's a lot of things you could be choosing to spend your money and time on. And when they make that choice for something I've done, that's, that's pretty remarkable. All right. Awesome. Uh, now, I want to get to films here in a second, uh, but one more writing question. So you sure. have you've written for some of the biggest names in entertainment, right? You've worked on Star Wars properties, DC, Stranger Things. I mean, huge, huge franchises. Is there a franchise or a property that you would love to work on if given the chance? Like if they said, hey, any property you want, you can you can create something for which one would you choose? Wow, <clears throat> that's a great question. Um you know, gosh, it's so hard because there's so many things now. And I think about it in terms of like, you know, the things that I really, that I really love are the things that I like love cin cinematically, you know? And I feel mm -hmm. like, you know, if I were to do something, you know, what honestly what I would want to do. Um, one of my favorite things in the world is, are the universal uh, monsters, the universal oh, horror. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would love to be able to, and I know they have, you know, Invisible Man has, has has come out. There's the new Renfield, which is ostensibly, I don't know if they're sharing a universe or what. Um, but, you know, people are, are are dipping back into that. But but I, I, I love even beyond the, mo the Universal Monsters. There's so many great Universal Horror from the 30s and 40s that are, you know, downright deranged. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah for sure. And... Uh, being able to play in that sandbox in some way, you know, cinematically especially, I think would be 
a, a dream come true. You know, there's just there's just so many great stories. And it's funny how many great things that they were doing. You know, this is kind of like where you had a slippery relationship with with the code and uh, what you were able to do. I mean, you're thinking about like people, people like were, you know, Edward Ulmer were doing and stuff like that. And, and it's some twisted stuff. And it's it's pretty remarkable. And for for the time period that it was made and uh, to be able to go back to that, whether in the monsters playground or with the uh just all the universal stuff they're doing in general that that would be that would be pretty fantastic that yeah that that would be awesome um i noticed you said invisible man and renfield just uh we all i think we all just ignore the tom cruise mummy movie (laughs) Uh, we just kind of like pretend that it doesn't exist because it gets us by yeah (laughs) we do i i you know it's funny i never even seen it you know and i like tom cruise a lot Um, i do too but I, I, from what I understand, it's not just, you know, I will, I will suffer through a bad movie, especially if it's something that like I, I have an interest in, but I, I won't suffer through a, a, how do I say this? Just, just a mess of a movie. It seems like that movie's <laughs> not, not necessarily bad as much as it is like uh, just kind of a failure to even be a movie at all. Right. <laughs> a <little bad> <laughs> right. Right. Oh, such a disappointment. Um, but let's talk about some things that are not disappointments. Let's get in some movies. And, um, before we get into the Coen brothers, just to give my listeners a a bit of your cinematic taste, what are some of your favorite movies of all time? Yeah. I mean, so obviously there's a lot of Coen stuff in there. That's why, you know, when we were talking, we got into the Coen brothers and we'll, we'll discuss that in a moment. Um, you know, it's funny because I do a lot of horror. Uh, I think people expect a lot of horror answers, um, and it's that's actually not that's actually not accurate. You know, I, I I I'm kind of a cinema lover lover first. You know, and I, while I just kind of undercut that by talking about the universal horror, which which is an exception, um, I really just love cinema, especially you know you know older cinema. I don't I I, I still watch new movies, not a ton. Um, but you know, stuff that I've seen recently that I love one or I've rewatched recently. That's one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, from one of my favorite director is, uh, paper moon, uh, Bogdanovich. Mm, yep. Um, is a movie I just adore. I think it's perfect. I think it's a perfect movie. Uh, I think it's stunning. The, the wide angle beauty, the long takes that he does, Ryan and Tatum O'Neill are just fantastic. It's such a fun movie. Uh, Madeline Kahn gives one of the maybe one of the best monologues of all time um sure there's there's just so much to love in that movie i just i i, I love bogdanovich's work uh, i think they all laughed is is just criminally underrated and under underappreciated although it's kind of had a little renaissance lately because i've seen like people like you know wes anderson and quentin tarantino talk about it which is which is great um last picture show obviously uh um, nickelodeon i think is i, I think just fantastic and nobody again it's just like he he was a victim of a lot of circumstances that made people not like peter mcdonavich <laughs> yeah yeah no doubt um um and for silly stuff you know if he was around today you know seeing what people you know people are guilty of now like he was guilty of being happy you know <laughs> um and i think now he would he that stuff would be ignored uh, and his his movies would be looked at more uh generously um and they are and they are and they are now but yeah but bogdanovich i love i love um you know paul thomas anderson uh magnolia is one of my favorite movies of all time i think it's just just a masterpiece he's made a he's made a number of masterpieces hard to pick just one um um there's a, a, a just so much that he's 
done, I don't, I don't know he's ever done anything wrong necessarily. Um, so yeah, PTA is in there. Um, um, I'm trying to think what else, you know, there's so many to, to, to narrow it down to, um, but those are some, I mean, I just love, especially the Americana, you know, classic filmmaking, you know, like I, I can dig into like the sixties, especially, you know, seeing the rain is one of my favorite movies. I think mm. it's just, just a, a, a wonder and a, a delight to watch every time I see it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'm a criterion junkie, you know, I'm always nice, watching nice. whatever's on there, the, the channel, uh, I've been a member of that since the start. I've been collecting criterion movies for gosh, just probably 15, 20 years, something like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I just, I just love cinema, you know, and like I said, there, there are some of my favorites, but I feel like almost every movie is my favorite. I watch a movie. Uh, I just watched Speak of Bogdanovich. I watched, uh, was rewatching um, At Long Last Love, which is not good. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen that one. Uh, it just, it doesn't work. It does, it doesn't, I, I get what he's trying to do. You know, he's using these Cole Porter songs. Um, there's really no context. There's really no narrative context for anything that's happening. And not to mention, and I gotta hate saying this. Everybody's quite bad in it, <laughs> uh, but I'm still like, you know, it's still a pleasant experience to watch, you know. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, Richard Linklater is another one who I who absolutely adore. The Before movies, Waking Life, who I think Waking Life is one of my favorites, and that's something that we'll probably tap into. I love the Linklater does something similar to the Coens, and like these always have these uh, philosophical underpinnings to his film um so so there's always there is there well uh that that as well and they're the kind of tongue-in-cheek humor that they're able to mine regional humor as well which the coens do re remarkably well um but yeah those are a couple sorry for the ramble there's just so many no no that's cool maybe someday you'll get your turn in the criterion closet man that would be a, a day right <laughs> i think about that all the time it's funny because i live in chicago and they used to be here a long time ago um and I had an office once upon a time that was close right by where they once were. Um, mm. So it's it's sad to say that they see that they had left. But yeah, I think about that a lot. I think about, you know, who gets in that closet. I'm like, who, how do I, <laughs> how do I get my shot just to go? I don't even want anything. You don't have to give me anything. Just let me, just let me roam through it for a little bit and then I'll go and I'll leave everybody alone. You know? <laughs> well, that's awesome. We, we have some Coen Brothers films in the collection. Now- when we talk Coen Brothers, first off, what what's the first Coen Brothers film that you remember seeing? Um, I saw Raising Arizona when I was really, really, really young. I was probably, I don't know, seven or eight. Wow, that's yeah, that is young. Yeah, it's probably. I mean, I remember, I remember it being on television or something of the sort on cable, maybe or whatever. And I remember, I definitely have memories of seeing, uh, seeing Raising Arizona when I was a kid. My my parents let me watch anything. Like sure. Any when I was a kid, so I, I I do remember seeing that one. I think mine was probably Fargo, but Raising Arizona was pretty much right after Fargo. I think when you yeah. watch Coen Brothers films, we we kind of talked about their uh, their panache in like the um, regional humor and their philosophical underpinnings to their films. What else draws you to their movies? What do you think makes them so special as directors? You know. <clears throat> There's something, one thing that I really love about the Coens that, you know, given the opportunity I would strive for as well, even though I, I'm sure it's, um, 
difficult for them and cause them difficulties. But while you can look at the Cohen's library and you can always see the relationship between, and you know, like we said, there's, there's common thread between all the movies they make, but they've really never made the same movie twice, you know, like, Oh yeah. Every movie is different. I mean, yeah, there's some, there's some, they've done noir maybe twice where you can look at blood simple and the man who wasn't there, but God, those movies couldn't be more dissimilar, (laughs) you know? You can throw the noir blanket over it, but man, that's got to be a big blanket to get both those movies in there. <laughs> um, but I, I just love that. I love that they every movie that they do is them trying to stretch out a new muscle and tell a different story. I mean, they did Fargo, and then they went and did, oh gosh, what they follow up Fargo was... Um, big Lebowski, right? Big Lebowski, yeah. I was going to say it was Lebowski. And, you know... Just imagine the guts that it takes to do that. You 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 do Fargo, and then while the Cohen brothers were around before Fargo, like the Cohens weren't really the Cohens, and and I know, and I'm sure you know this as well. Like I was, you know, old enough to know the cultural impact um, that Fargo had, and it really made the Cohens the Cohens. Um, and so people recognize them as the guys who did Fargo. You know, like. And then they did the Big Lebowski, which is totally different. <laughs> you know, yeah. like um, that's that's so brave. That's so brave. And like they could have went and did something similar to Fargo. I don't know what it would be, but they could have stayed in that lane. Uh, and they didn't. And then they switched things up again. And they switched things up again after that. And they just kept doing that, you know. And it's just remarkable. I mean, I think they followed true grit with simple man or, or i'm sorry a serious man well they won the Os- they win the oscar for no country for old men and then they go and do a serious man like that's crazy to me yeah that's the movie you make when you win an oscar you know because yeah. yeah. <laughs> now they're like well we can we can do this strange um you know deeply philosophical and, and religious existential movie because we won an oscar <laughs> here we go we're gonna do this I mean, that like again they could have went and did something again and st- staying in that no country lane and they absolutely refuse to do that and that that's just so courageous and so cool to me originally you had said let's do top five Cone brothers movies and obviously i'd love to do that but at the same time i'm sure we were going to have a lot of crossover so it's like well right. let's do the characters because there's there's some more to choose from there and then i started going through their movies and thinking in my head like all these characters they have and it's so hard to narrow it down to five because all of their side characters are so extremely well realized as well. It's like they go through their screenplay and they give everyone in there with a speaking part or not some really cool trait, some really cool inflection, something that makes them stand out. So when I'm sitting here, and I'm doing this list. I had like five iterations of my list. <laughs> I had I actually rewatched two of the movies because I was going to put certain characters on my list. And then after watching the movie, decided it had to be another character from that movie because their characters are just all so good. It's those small characters that they give so much life to that I think gives their their screenplays like such a it, it makes them so different from other writers. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, there's no, there's really no world that they leave undiscovered, especially at a character level. The the greatest compliment I ever got on one of my screenplays was I sent it to two different readers, and both of them sent back as a negative that it felt like a Coen Brothers 
it felt like I was trying to emulate the Coen brothers and I, they meant it as a negative. I took it as the most positive feedback I could get. It's like, I, I love these guys and to have my work compared to them, even if it's like a lesser knockoff version, you know what? I'm totally cool with that feedback. That's exactly what I was going for. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you and think about it. Like what's strange is that nobody really even tries. I can't think of any like Cohen adjacent writer, director, anybody, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe there's somebody who's close, but real, I mean, you know, cause they'll do like their screwball stuff and other people will do like some screwball comedy stuff or whatever, but nobody does it the way they do. And I, I'm not saying it's easy to replicate, but like, it's just strange that, you know, you know, when, when Pulp, it's weird, Pulp Fiction and Fargo came out the same year, you know, uh, 90 or no, Pulp Fiction was 94, Fargo was 96. So yeah, a couple the, years apart. Yeah. Right. Around the same time. Yeah. Similar. Um, but we got a thousand Pulp Fictions after that. None of them were good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and we don't got, we have, nobody did a Fargo, you know, nobody really, there weren't like all these people all of a sudden trying to be the Coens when you were instead you got, you had so many Tarantino wannabes, you never really got that with the Coens, which is strange, you know, maybe it's, maybe just because it's so hard to do, or maybe, I don't know, but like trying, uh, you know, aspiring to that seems like a pretty reasonable and, uh, you know, a really great goal to have. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point that I've never thought of. Maybe I'll be the, maybe I'll be the first, who knows? Somebody's got you, because they're, they're, they're kind of seem a little done for now at least you know they've gone their separate ways they're they're doing different stuff which i which i'm cool with i'm, I'm excited to see what they come up with but uh i don't know what the future of the cohen's are at this moment yeah that's true that's true michael ready to get into this list here yeah absolutely you know what's gonna happen you know what's happening here right now i know what's gonna happen no 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 How many do you think we'll cross over on? I'm going to say three. All right. I'll 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 take the under. I'll say two. I'll say two. Okay. I'll go. Th- oh, yeah. Three. You go two. Okay. So for my number five, I wavered. I wavered big time on who to put in this. And I wanted most of my list are, are main characters, but I wanted to get a side character in there. I, I was trying to think of like, okay, who is that one character from a film that I don't really love that kind of elevates it to a film that makes it a little bit better. And I came up with, again, a movie I'm not a huge fan of, 2016's Hail Caesar. And I'm just going to say the line, what that it were so simple. (laughs) (laughs) Um, To to give you a a little backstory about the movie, this largely it's about this uh, studio fixer named Eddie Mannix. And it's his job to make sure that all of the movie stars are in line for his studio are taken care of. And uh, Hobie Doyle is one of those actors. He's a Western star for Capitol Pictures. He's just wrapped up his latest Western. And now he's been cast in a role that's way out of his element. I'm talking like this dude is severely miscast, but they're trying to fulfill his contract. They're trying to make him a star in a, in a lane he's just not comfortable in. <laughs> uh, he's He's going from these like, really John Wayne style Westerns to a stuffy early fifties, upper class drama. And he does, not only does he not uh, understand the part, he doesn't sound the part and he's gone to Eddie Mannix to express that he doesn't feel like he's right for this movie, but Mannix is like, you'll be fine. He kind of coaxes him back into it. First day on set in his very first scene, (laughs) all Hobie's got to do is walk into this room, sit down on the couch next to a female actor and reply to her with, what that it were so simple. 
And my number five pick here is the director, Lawrence Lorenz, <laughs> who is played by Rafe Fiennes. Yes. He watches this line reading and it's it's terrible. So, you know, he, he gives him one shot. He calls cut. He walks over. Um, he's dressed in like this really interesting checkered smoking jacket. And he pulls uh, he pulls him aside and uh, he he he's trying to coax him to get the line right. And of course, it's Ray Fines, and his delivery is so amazing. And he says, he says, just do what I do. Say what I say exactly like I say it. What that it were so simple. And the way I, I can't even replicate the way Ray Fiennes does it. He, he's so amazing. All right, let's try this. Your line, just say it as I say it. Say your line exactly as I'm about to, just as I'm about to do. Sure, okay. Would the tutorial so simple? 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 My dear boy, why do you say that? Why do you say tutorial? Will you just say it like I said it? Yes. Would the tutorial so simple? 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 Watch my mouth. Would the tutorial so simple? Would the tutorial so simple? Keep your head still. Would the tutorial so simple? Would the tutorial so simple? Would the so simple? I'm trying to say that, Mr. Lawrence. Lawrence? I thought a minute ago it was Lorraine. No, we can use Christian names, my good dear boy. Lawrence is fine, just as I call you Hobie. Okay. So, would the tutorial so simple? Would the tutorial so simple? Would the tutorial so simple? Trippingly. Would the tutorial so simple? Trippingly. No, don't say trippingly. Say the line trippingly. Would the tutorial so simple? Hobie tries to replicate it, and they go back and forth for what seems like three to four minutes. And you just see Ray finds Lawrence Lorenz getting so frustrated because he knows in this moment, like, my movie is fucked. <laughs> he knows my movie is done for because this guy cannot deliver the line. And he's only in one scene. But it was one of those scenes, much like Alec Baldwin in uh, Glengarry Glen Ross, where that's what I remember. Now, I like Glengarry Glen Ross a lot more, but it's still like when I think of that movie, it's Alec Baldwin's part. When I think about Hail Caesar, it's this line reading. It's this part. And I sometimes like I don't want to watch Hail Caesar again, but I will go on YouTube and I will watch this scene because it's so good. And he is so good in that role. So, yeah, number five is my minor character here at Lawrence Lorenz from <laughs> Hail Caesar. That's a good one. You know, it's so funny. OK, um, I thought we were going to have one right off the bat. Uh, and that is a great moment. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll kind of have to cross over into it because my number five was Hobie Doyle. <laughs> oh, awesome. Yes, awesome. Okay. Well, I don't think it's regulation size, but it'll have to do. You ever heard of origami with the Japanese do? This here's Italian origami. See, now you just whoop. Let's see how she does now. Oh, she's peeking back. Oh, there she goes. <laughs> oh, she's balling. Clear. This is why I never order it with meat sauce. How'd you get into pictures, Hobie? Got roped into it. <laughs> it's funny, you know, uh, Alden, you know, Alden Ehrenreich, right? Is that yeah, how you say Alden, it? Alden Ehrenreich, yeah. Alden Ehrenreich. Future solo after. Hail Caesar. Yep. Uh, and he gets such a hard time for Solo. And Solo is actually a movie that I love and I, I think is far better than than anyone gives it credit for. Um, but 
he is fantastic in this. If you watch Hail Caesar, which is a movie that I love, I love Hail Caesar. It's one of my favorite Coens. Um, oh, really? Awesome. Uh, it's so good. It's just such a joy to watch, you know, I, and I love, um, I love that kind of in, uh, Hollywood, uh, in not in, like Hollywood history almost because Eddie Mannix is a real person, you know, who worked for uh, MGM. Um, and he was their fixer, uh, not nearly as pleasant as Josh Brolin plays him. <laughs> <laughs> um, he may have committed a murder. We don't know. <laughs> um, may have committed multiple. Who knows? But um, um, what's so fun about Hobie Doyle is it won that scene just to see him stutter and stammer. And but what's so great about it is that I feel like there's there's like this this mirror that's being held up to like everything that the Coens are. It, it just that line is perfect. Were that it were that it were that's uh, <laughs> <laughs> what that it, it were that simple. What that it were that simple. And in a Coen brother movies, nothing is that simple. You know, yeah. you have all these characters who are all these Hobie Doyles who are just trying to make sense out of what should be simple. And it's never simple. And it always gets complicated. And they always just get lost. You know, it's like the burn after reading ending where it's like, you know, what do we learn? I don't know. We learn never do that again. You know, uh, <laughs> how, what the hell if I know what we did anyway? You know, like and that is kind of poor Hobie, you know, just put in the situation, like you said, that he has no right to be in and he's just trying to do his best. He's such a winning guy. He just wants to smile. And he's like, oh, shucks, I just want to do my best. Yeah, but it's never that simple. There's no option in life where you can be Hobie Doyle and it's that simple, or you can be Larry Gopnik and a serious man and, and examine everything and think about everything, and it's that simple. It never is. You get punished for being simple. You get punished for being complicated by the universe. And Hobie is just such a fun character to watch. The, 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 the moment where he's on the date and they start <laughs> seeing the, the, that's the story of love. Um, him and his date and they have this great musical number that's starting and it stops because he sees the communist briefcase and he's like hey there's that you know and he goes on this this chase which eventually you know kind of leads him to george clooney and it's just he has no idea what's going on <laughs> you know like he knows there's a briefcase he knows there's these kind of like the periphery like this sort of shape of something that Eddie told him earlier. He doesn't realize the scope. He can't say the line, but he's just kind of going through it anyway, this kind of like wonderful idiot. <laughs> um, uh, and, and, and he's played so well. And I just, I love that type of character. And I love how like simply he distilled that type of Cohen uh, character in, uh, in, in this movie. And he did, and Alden did a great job with it. I agree with you. I think that scene that scene doesn't work if they're not both playing against each other. And you you feel bad for Hobie because he's like you said, he's really trying. He's trying to get that line right. He's just he's not used to this kind of acting. And that's where you see Ray Fine's character just like getting so frustrated. And at the same time, Hobie, who you feel like should be more frustrated, is just like, I'm trying. I'm, tr you know, I'm trying to get it right. It's yeah, it's such right. a good scene. So earnest. <laughs> and he's a he's a great character, too. He really looks like one of those early 50s stars. Like, oh, you see him sit down on that couch and it's like, man, he just looks like he's from the he, he looks like he's from the 50s. He does. He does. He's got a great look. He's got a great look. I don't know what he's up to now. Um, I know he was in uh, Brave New World, um, but I don't know what else he's doing. I hope hope a lot because he's great. I think he's just just really a, a talented guy and a great look. He's a he's in Cocaine Bear coming out soon. Oh, 
There you go. All right. <laughs> Which good. I'm really yeah. looking forward to. I, me too. <laughs> well, it seems like, uh, you know, I teed you up for your number five and you're teeing me up for my number four because you mentioned a guy looking for answers and that guy was Larry Gopnik from A Serious Man, who is my number four. She wants a get. A what? She wants oh, a-, a get. Uh-huh. Sure. I feel like the carpet's been yanked out from under me. I don't know which end is up. I'm not even sure how to react. I'm too confused. What reasons did she give for the rupture? She didn't give reasons, just that, oh, you know, things haven't been going well. And is that true? I guess. I don't know. She's usually right about these things. I was hoping that Rabbi Nachner could... That he would... he would guess? Well, with the benefit of his life experience. No offense. No, of course not. I am the junior rabbi. You mentioned uh, barbaric. Owen is cursed. It feels like Larry is cursed in this movie. And A Serious Man is less of a linear film, and it's more of a character study about this guy, played by Michael Stolbart in just an amazing knock-your-socks-off role. He's a math professor in Minnesota in the late 60s. The movie starts with this like wraparound story of a Dybbuk, and ends with a tornado. And that sounds like really exciting. In the middle is just this character study of this dude going through some shit. He's, He's kind of a schlub. He's got a wife who's in love with another man. His kids are pretty typical teens, but they're out ditching school, smoking weed. His brother is this degenerate who's sleeping on their couch. And he's got problems at work with a student who's trying to, uh, basically pay for a passing grade and there's some blackmail stuff going on there. This character to me is like if Mike Yanagita from Fargo was the main character in his own film. Oh man, that's a, that's a great way of putting it. He's like a sad sack. Everybody's trying to comfort him. Like you, you think about how many people tell him you're going to be all right. Like uh, his divorce lawyer is doing it. His wife's lover <laughs> Cy Abelman is doing it. Just look at the parking lot, Larry. Just look at the parking lot. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Even the Columbia House Records guy who calls and he's like, are you okay? (laughs) Like, it's it's, it's so funny. He's just such a passive person. He's so adverse to conflict that he pays for Cy's funeral when he dies. He's this guy that's trying to figure stuff out. You hear him say, what's going on? Like 20 different times in this movie. And this is one of those characters I was talking about where I originally, when I wrote this list, my original draft had Cy Abelman as yeah. being on my list because I think he's, God, he's such a great, memorable character. But I watched this movie again and it's like, okay, Larry's got to be on this list because Michael Stolberg does such a great job and he makes you feel bad for him. But at the same time, it's like he's doing nothing to overcome any of this stuff. And there's a, a line in there while he's doing a math problem for his students where he says, as he's talking about this math problem, you can't ever really know what's going on, but you're responsible for it. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's, you know, that's the, the theme of this movie right here. You never know what's going on, but you're responsible for it. And I think he's such a, such a great, rich character in uh, A Serious Man. So, yeah. Number four, Larry Gopnik for me. That's a good, that's a great one. That's a great one. Um uh... I'm going to bite my tongue on that. I'm not going to say anything. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Number four for me um, it is kind of a slam dunk and it's an easy choice, but you know, I couldn't leave him off the list because I love the role he serves in the Cohen universe. Uh, it's Anton Sugar. There's something wrong with what? With anything. Is that what you're asking me? Is there something wrong with anything? Will there be anything else? You already asked me that. Oh, well, I need to see about closing now. See about closing? Yes, sir. What time do you close? Now, we close now. Now is not a time. What time do you close? Generally around dark, at dark. You don't know what you're talking about, do you? Sir? I said, you don't know what you're talking about. What time do you go to bed? Sir? You're a bit deaf, aren't you? I said, what time do you go to bed? Um, no Country for Old Men, um, which which is not, actually not one of my favorite uh, Cohen movies. Um, but one of the things that I love, one of the themes that I love about Cohen Brothers movies is that the universe doesn't care about you. You know, it just doesn't care. You know, you can be Larry Gopnik and go around being shit on, you know, relentlessly. <laughs> and he's just saying, I didn't do anything, which is kind of the point that he doesn't do anything. But then you see people who do do anything, do do things, uh, and they get equally, you know, uh, punished by by the world and the universe. And Anton Chigurh is the first time I feel like they made the universe an actual character. Sure. Like, he just doesn't care. Like, he's he's the coin flip. He's just like, it's it's random. And it's chaos. He doesn't really want anything. You know, Anton doesn't really have an inner drive. Like, it's not like, you know, the, the writing 101 that people tell you is like, what does your character want? You know, you have to give him a want. Anton doesn't want anything. You know, he I guess he wants to kill people. I guess he wants to do his job. But he doesn't see, you don't really get the impression that there's some thing that's motivating that, you know? He just does it because that's, he does it because that's what he does. Um, He's just... This, like I said, this 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 representation of the Cohen Brother universe is in that there's a force out there, an unseeable, unstoppable force that you can't compromise with, you can't bargain with, you can't bribe, you can't beg, you can't plead, you can't do anything. It's just gonna do what it's gonna do. And it may have reason sometimes, and it may not sometimes. Um, you'll never know the cause. You'll, you know, probably won't even understand the effect. But it's just there, and that's what Anton is. And I, the, the, obviously, you can point to the the coin flipping. You know, it's uh, it's <laughs> Great random. Scene. Yeah, it's just a coin, but it's the most important coin. You know, like it's all like these these contradictions and conundrums and you know brain pretzels that when you look at it doesn't make sense. You know, it's it's like it, you going back to your point of Larry, like you know, like it's. You don't have to understand it, but you are responsible for it on the test. And the cat is alive, but also the cat's dead. And you know, um, and there's these great, wonderful paradoxes, and that's life. And Anton is the kind of the harbinger of these paradoxes, and he's this force that's moving things around him in that story. And there's really not much anybody can do about it. You know, even when at the end he he breaks his arm bone is coming out of the flesh and he just keeps going it just doesn't matter you know what happens to him and he's going to be relentless no matter what um and i just kind of love that's always been 
it was such a clever theme that's always been, you know, for the, for the Coens, a theme, you know, from, from Barton Fink all the way to uh, Serious Man and beyond and, and Llewellyn Davis and everything that, that the universe is, is indifferent to your struggle. struggles. Sometimes it'll add to them. Sometimes it will relieve them. You'll never really understand, you know, it's the old question, you know, why do bad things happen to good why do bad things happen to good people? And we don't know, but we also don't know why good things happen to good people. No idea, <laughs> you know? Um, and Anton, like I said, it's just a clever thing to make a character of that. And uh, it's really powerful. And I really loved what they did in, in creating that person. I figured that if we were going to have a crossover, Anton Shiguro was going to be one of them. Anton was my number two. I'm going to slide him back here to number three so I can just talk about him at the same time. I'll go for it. Yeah, he's he's amazing. Like you said, what's the most you've ever lost on a coin toss? Um, he's he's an unstoppable force. Like you said, he's he's a human terminator, complete with like patching himself up after he gets uh, he gets shredded by a, a I think he gets hit by a shotgun. He patches himself up. He's it follows with a ridiculous haircut. Right. <laughs> And it's the combination of everything you said, along with the way he talks, his kind of his his look is kind of funny. It's kind of off. And his unique weapon, which is this captive bolt pistol, usually usually um, used to like pierce the brain of a cow, I think, in order to kill them quickly. Mm -hmm. And his demeanor is just really unique and it makes him one of the more interesting villains because like you said he he doesn't have ulterior motives like his job is to get back two million dollars and he's gonna do that and nothing's gonna stand in his way right he's got some of the most memorable scenes in that film like when he's hunting Llewellyn through the hotel or when he's uh he's going up against these rival Mexican cartel members like you said he can't reason with them He's always going to do what he says he's going to do. And we see that in a very late scene in the movie. Uh, the only, really the only person, well, one of the only people that stands up to Anton Chigurh and lives is the mobile home community manager. <laughs> in like such a great scene when he's like, where does he work? And she's like, I can't give you that information. <laughs> I had to have Chigurh on my list too. So he was at my number three. I'm going to knock him down here. Or he was at number two. I'll knock him down here to number three. Yeah, he's so great. You know, and I'll I'll do the same since we're, we're shuffling around, which I think will help. Because I had uh, Larry Gopnik to I'll, I'll push him up so we he's not too far from mind um but yeah larry again is like this quintessential cohen character who you don't understand or he doesn't understand or, or you as a, as a as a viewer don't understand either why these things are happening to him you know just one thing after another and it introduces this great cohen thing that's like you can't lead an unexamined life because then you won't know anything. You know, you'll be like Larry. You won't know anything. And you'll go around yelling, I didn't do anything, or I don't know what's happening. I don't get it. And trying to get other people to tell you what's happening, whether it's, you know, a neighbor or whether it's one of the rabbis or, or, or his lawyer, he cries to. <laughs> like just anybody to tell him anything, you know, is what he's looking for. And you can't do that. Which also equals the square root of h over a squared, which lets us delta x, delta p equals the square root of 0.077 a squared, h over a squared, and 1.74 h bar, okay? The uncertainty principle. It proves we can't ever really know 
What's going on? But even though you can't figure anything out, you will be responsible for it on the midterm. You also can't examine life like his brother, um, who I, Richard Kind, who I thought was terrific. Yep, um, Arthur Gopnik. What was his name? Arthur, I think. Arthur, it was Arthur, yes. You can't examine life where he's trying to create uh, his mathematical equation to solve everything. You just go in a rabbit hole of, of mania and all you'll find are more mysteries. So, like, if you do nothing... You'll be in the dark and you won't understand anything that's happening to you. But if you're active and you try to do something, you will find nothing but mysteries and unanswered questions. It's 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 my like I said to you, it's my favorite line. Like, and there's some people who who can exist in that middle, like the young rabbi, who's just like, hey, oh boy, you know, Larry, I understand what you're going through, and this is so sad. But you know, God has wonderful things for us all around. He's like, just the parking lot. The parking lot's so wonderful, and. He can find meaning in something like that. There's people who can find meaning, and no matter what happens, they're kind of just keep have a bounce in their step, and they can turn around and say, "But look at the look at the parking lot, Larry." And there's people like Larry who are like, "I don't have any idea what you're talking about. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> this explains nothing. I need a I need a better answer from 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 the creator, from the universe, from something. I need an answer, and they'll never be satisfied." And well, some people are, but it's the Cohen brothers characters who aren't. And Larry is that is that character who tries to find stuff out and runs into nothing but more mysteries and nothing but unsatisfying conclusions. Like the, the story with the Goy's teeth that really is entertaining, but means nothing, <laughs> you know? Um, and it's just such a great Cohen's character. Like, you know, even if you did have knowledge and you have no control over the universe anyway, what good does the knowledge do for you? You know, like, is it better to be blissfully ignorant? Is it better to see the parking lot and say, boy, isn't that just full of joy and wonder and, and answers? I don't know. I mean, it, it, the Cohen's like kind of always kind of dangle that carrot to you of like, what is and what should you, how should, how should you live life? And I think that's something that's always circling, like how should you live life? And they pose so many different variations, uh, but really always in fascinating questions and questionings and, and fascinating outcomes that they don't have the answer, um, but they love looking at the question. Great way to put it. Sometimes you just need a change of perspective. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, that is a great movie. If if you haven't not checked out A Serious Man, you should definitely check out A Serious Man. It is oh, a great so Coen's Brothers film. Um, all right, we're down to uh, our last two here. We've already had two crossovers, so we go one over. I guess you win here. Um, and I have a feeling we're going to cross over on at least one of our last two. Okay. <laughs> Um, okay, my number two here. This is another one where I watched this film and I changed my list because of my rewatch. So uh, I went into my, my first version of this list with Matt Damon's character, LaBeef, from, <laughs> from True Grit from 2010. And then I watched the movie and I was like, you know what? LaBeef is a great character, but Matty Ross is my number two here. Matty yeah. Ross is an amazing character uh she is played by Haley steinfeld or Haley, yeah Haley steinfeld um and her father is killed by a ruthless outlaw named tom cheney and she goes to collect the body she's told that 
Tom Chaney has fled with the Pepper Gang into Indian territory where the local sheriff has no jurisdiction. And in response, this 14-year-old girl hires this dude named Rooster Cogburn to travel with her to catch Chaney and bring him back to Arkansas so he can be hanged for his crime. Um, this this was no doubt her coming out party as a star. Yeah. Because she is in this film acting next to Jeff Bridges and Matt Damon for most of this movie and doesn't just hold her own. She steals this movie. She's this 14-year-old character who takes no shit. She is just this incredibly strong female character who holds her own in any conversation. In the first 20 minutes, you understand what she's all about because she walks into the, um, it's a retired Colonel Stonehill's place. And he's this man who had sold horses to her father before his death. And the horses that were stolen were stolen by Tom Chaney. So she walks in and she basically says, you owe me 325 bucks. At first, this guy Stonehill, he's this old man. He's not taking her seriously. He's balking at her claims for the money. He is prepared to give her nothing. He's incredulous. Like, really, 14-year-old girl, you're walking in here. You're telling me what I'm going to give up. You're walking out of here with nothing. And then four minutes of screen time later, he's a wreck, and she's walking out with exactly what she went looking for. Yeah, great and scene. And her dad's saddle. Yeah, it's a great scene. I'm Maddie Ross, daughter of Frank Ross. Oh, Tragic thing. May I say your father impressed me with his manly qualities. He was a close trader, but he acted the gentleman. Well, I propose to sell those ponies back to you that my father bought. Oh, that I fear is out of the question. I will see that they're shipped to you at my earliest convenience. Well, we don't want the ponies now. We don't need them. Well, that hardly concerns me. Your father bought the ponies and paid for them, and there's an end of it. I, I have the bill of sale. And I want $300 for Papa's saddle horse that was stolen from your stable. You have to take that up with a man who stole a horse. Tom Chaney stole the horse while it was in your care. You are responsible. <laughs> yeah, I admire your sand. But I believe you will find I'm not liable for such claims. You were the custodian. If you were a bank ever robbed, you could not simply tell the depositors to go hang. I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. If the wrong person is cast in this role, the movie doesn't work. Yep. But this movie was nominated for 10 Academy Awards including her for Best Supporting Actress. And honestly, like, she should have been nominated for Best Actress. She's not supporting this movie. She is this movie. Uh, if you've never seen True Grit, it was their first remake. I think it was their first remake, right? No, Lady Killers. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, so yeah. second remake. Um, but no, nobody, from, nobody from that movie on this list, I'm going to guess. <laughs> <laughs> not on mine either. Uh, True Grit is a fantastic movie, and... Uh, it deserved all the accolades that it got. You know, it's funny. I, I mentioned, I never thought about this before, but I, I mentioned Paper Moon earlier and it's just like very similar. Like it's a similar setup. Like I want my $200, you know, like, yeah. Um, and her demanding that and that's kind of propelling stuff. And also she, uh, Taylor O'Neill won Best Supporting Actress when she should have been Best Actress. There's, there's one scene, one small scene that she's not in, but otherwise she's in every single scene in that movie. I have no idea how that shaked out, you know, to get her in even into that category, but uh, yeah. yes, weird overlap. Um, so uh, my number two uh, and one of my favorite Coens is uh, the Llewellyn Davis. Um, nice. Who I just, I adore that movie. I just adore that movie. I adore, I, I don't think I've ever seen on screen the 
the absolute um, emotional tragedy of being an artist uh, that I've seen in, inside Llewellyn Davis. Like, not only is it because of the grief, because of his partner's uh, death, uh, there, there's obviously that, but just the pain and suffering of trying to make art. Um, I've never seen on the screen, at least for me, depicted so honestly um, and so convincingly. Um, what Llewellyn Davis goes through of never being able to win, never being like just just no, regardless of his talent, uh, regardless of his skill, regardless of his attempts, he's just always failing. And it's so painful to watch, but so true. Um, my favorite moment of this of the of the film, though, I mean, just to show again that the the uncontrollable nature of the universe, especially in Cohen's movies, is when he goes, um, he's going to play it straight. You know, he's going to give up his art. And anybody who makes art, you know, has these moments where they're like, I'm done. I'm just going to go get the go get the nine to five. I'm going to go get the day job. And he goes to join the uh, merchant Marines and he pays his due to go get his job. And then he doesn't have his license, which was in a, if I'm getting this right, like in a box that his sister threw out, I believe that he told her to throw out. Yeah, I think um, it was. Something like that. But like, even his attempts to be like, I'm giving up. I'm just not going to do this anymore. The universe is telling me to give up. So he gives up. And then the universe tells him, you know, you know, you're not going to be, you can't be good at this either. Because <laughs> you, you think to yourself, like, you know, I'm sure you know this. You think to yourself, fine, the universe is shouting at me to stop, you know, don't for Llewellyn to don't be a musician anymore. So the universe is telling me to go do something else. So he goes and does something else and gets the same result, gets the same exact result that he had as a musician, that all these things kind of, I don't, you know, it's hard to say conspiring to work against him because he certainly made some his own mistakes in the film, uh, in the story, but like, there's nothing helping Llewellyn out when he tries to be an artist, when he tries not to be an artist. And it, it's just that beautifully portrayed, the universe is probably against you. Uh, <laughs> so, and there's also some beauty in that because it's like, there's also like, you would think, you know, what I love about the movie is like, you would think that that would be something that breaks you, but there's an undercurrent in Llewellyn Davis that like, it's also kind of liberating. Like if the universe is against you, and it doesn't matter what you do. You, you might as well do what you want, you know? Yeah. You might as well just go for it. And if you suffer, you suffer. But at least you can suffer doing something that you love. Um, he's such a great character. Um, Oscar Isaac is an actor I adore. I wish he would stop doing shit like Moon Knight, for the love of God. <laughs> Please, Oscar, come back. <laughs> um, but, like, he's so good. He's so terrific in this role, and um, I, it's one of my favorite Cohen movies. Uh, just blending that existential angst with the life of an artist what really hit me pretty hard. I don't want it, don't send me off into outer space. I sweat when they put me yeah, in the precious Yeah, we want to go to the please, into the, into the verse. Really? Yeah. Don't turn up in the outer. When I can, it gets all muddled up into the verse. No, no, no. No, you just do the pupupas into the verse. If you do two pupas, pupa, yep, sweat when, yep, yep, yeah. I sweat when they stuff me in the pressure suits. Bubble helmet, flash, gold boots. Oh, 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 gravity. 
show. That's the place to be a hero. Okay. Okay. Hey, look, I'm happy for the gig, but who, who wrote this? I did. Yeah, this is a great performance, a great movie. Um, he, I don't think he was nominated for an Oscar for this, was he? Um, I don't know. I don't think so, no. Yeah, he should have been. He should have been. He's great. Uh, this movie has a great supporting cast, too, with Carey Mulligan and like one of the few Justin Timberlake performances I really like. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, Adam Driver, too, I believe. Oh, yeah. Yeah, He's just one of the musicians. Great, great looking movie too, with like a really kind of bleak cinematography. Yeah, so different. It looked it it looks different than any any of their movies. Yeah. Um, okay, grand finale time here. To our number one. Uh, you know, sometimes I try and throw a wrench in, in my number one for this one. You know what? Top five Coen Brothers characters. I just couldn't I couldn't go without having Marge Gunderson as my number one. Where's the state trooper? Back there, a good piece in the ditch next to his prowler. Okay. So we got a trooper pull someone over. We got a shooting. These folks drive by. There's a high-speed pursuit. Ends here, and then this execution-type deal. Yeah. I'd be very surprised if our suspect was from Brainerd. Yeah. And I'll tell you what. From his footprint, he looks like a big fella. You see something down there, Chief? No, I just think I'm going to barf. She's everything I love about the Coen brothers' writing. And she's the character that, as I finished, I remember watching Fargo for the very first time on VHS in, like, late 96 or 97, and thinking, like, that is, like, such a different, amazing character. So she had to be my number one. She's incredibly simple. She's really the only good main character in this story. But she's also not the kind of hero you would expect in a cops and kidnapper film. Right. If you haven't seen Fargo, the real quick line is that it's about a kidnapping plot that gets wildly out of out of hand after a husband pays two kidnappers to abduct his wife just for a little bit so he can extort his father-in-law. But of course, that leads to bribery, murder and a much larger, much messier picture all in the dead of winter covered in snow. Marge is the Brainerd, Minnesota police chief who um, she's just like got a great marriage with her husband, Norm. They're expecting their first child. She's just kind of like this wholesome lady who's just keeping her town safe. And one thing I really appreciated about the Coens in this film is that her pregnancy is never used in the story. She's just she's just pregnant. Um, It's not one of those things where like. They're going to exploit that. But as the viewer, you're you're so used to that being exploited that when she goes into these crazy situations, like as she heads into this final standoff, and we as the audience know that if something bad happens to her, it's also going to affect the baby. But they never go down that role, that route of cheapening that in their screenplay, uh, which I, I always appreciated. That's a great point. Yeah, she's also a deceptively smart character. And it's small touches like her first meeting with Jerry Lundegaard, who's amazing as well. And he was another one that I was considering for this list. But I wanted to do one one character per Cohen movie here. Uh, I almost had Jerry Lundegaard on here, played by William H. Macy. But she goes in to, to question him the first time because she realizes that the car probably came from his lot. 
And uh, she takes him at his word. And then she goes to this meeting with Mike Yamagita, who I mentioned before. And uh, because of that meeting, she finds out later that Mike was lying. And she realizes like, you know what? People can lie and they can lie really well. So she goes back to, to Lundergaard. And that's that, that little piece there highlights how great she is as a police officer. In order to prepare for the role, she learned how to use and fire a gun, and she spent days talking with a pregnant police officer to develop a backstory for her character, to develop a backstory between her and John Carroll Lynch's Norm. I just, I love everything about her. She's calm, she's sweet, and, and of course, the Minnesota nice accent just, it gets me. I love it so much. The film was nominated for seven Oscars. It won two, Best Original Screenplay, and of course, Best Actress here for Frances McDormand, just a powerhouse performance had to have marge gunderson as my number one yeah yeah and that's so well said that that was phenomenal and um any any cohen list that doesn't have her at number one i i just don't know how you can i don't know how you can pull that off she's my number <laughs> one as well um oh a crossover on three so where are you girls from chaska lesseur but i went to high school in white bear lake you know, go bears okay I want you to tell me what these fellas looked like. Well, the little guy, he was kind of funny looking. In what way? I don't know, just funny looking. Can you be any more specific? I couldn't really say. He wasn't circumcised. Was he funny looking apart from that? Yeah. So, you were having sex with a little fella then? Uh-huh. Is there anything else you can tell me about him? No. Like I say, he was funny looking. More than most people, even. What about the other fella? He was a little older. You know, he looked like the Marlboro Man. Oh, yeah? Yeah. But maybe I'm saying that, you know, because he smoked a lot of Marlboros. Uh-huh. You know, like a subconscious type of thing. Oh, yeah, that can happen. Yeah. Hey, they said they were going to the Twin Cities. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, is that useful to you? Oh, yeah, betcha, yeah. Yeah. She's great. She has such a, such a wonderful character, such an unusual Cohen brother character because her and Norm never get punished by the universe that never get told that they're silly or wrong for what they want and they never get like the rug pulled out from under them um it's almost I, you know I I wrestle with um I feel like she's the almost the the um, and this is a character who barely missed the list but high from raising oh, Arizona, yeah. mm-hmm. who I love and she's almost the evolution of that character like that this this person can believe that things can be okay like despite the circumstances i mean she's surrounded by murder and kidnapping and you got your friend over there in the wood chipper you know like and (laughs) she still goes home and says the world can be okay and my husband's gonna do these paintings and we're gonna go have our nice dinners and we're gonna we're, we're gonna do these simple things and the world is okay and that's where high lands at the end he's like you know maybe I can be have a good life, you know, and there's something just so sweet about that. And and Marge really represents that sweetness that like in the, you know, if you have the Cohen universe, you know, you have all these troubled characters and these, you know, questions without answers. And, um, you know, she doesn't really look for them. She doesn't really need them. You know, she just kind of does what she does. And whatever she experiences, you know, at the end, she experiences something pretty horrifying. And she says, you know, and it, but it's, look at this, and it's such a nice day, you know, and she just can't understand why you'd behave that way. And she stays, that compass stays 
remarkably true. And you get the feeling that it's going to stay that true after the credits roll, you know, and um, there's something so comforting about a Marge Gunderson in, in film and in, in, in the world. And she's just, she's just great. I mean, Frances McDormand um, had done so many great things before that. So it's hard to be like, that's what, you know, her breakout, but I think it is her breakout role and she's done so many great things after, but like that role is, is, a, is an all timer in the history of cinema, all-time character, all-time performance, and uh, in, a, in a movie that also is arguably one of the best that's ever been done. You know, it's just it's just so, it's a perfect, unique movie. I mean, that's one of the great, it's so absolutely unique. You look at what that movie is, like you described, the, the kidnapping plot that goes wrong, but it's not, it's not anything that you would expect it to play out, not only because the turns and the twists, but also because the characters, like you said, the characters that populate that, that story. Even, even her lecture, well, well, she's got somebody in the back of her police car, like all for a little bit of money. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's just, oh, it's, she's such a great character. Um, side note, have you seen the Fargo TV show? Uh, the, only the first season. Oh, okay. I really love the Fargo TV show. I hope it keeps going. Every, yeah, everyone I know has, I mean, I love the first season. Um, I thought it was terrific. It really took me to unexpected places, and I love Billy Bob Thornton's character. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, who's almost like an Anton Sugar, I guess, sort of, you know? Yeah, pretty um, much. Yeah, I never really thought about that. But yes, um, but I've heard the, the subsequent seasons are terrific as well. Yeah, there's some great characters in those two. I considered like sneaking one of those guys on my list, but I was like, ah, it's not really a Coen Brothers character. As much as I could try and stretch it, it's not. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, because it's uh, I forget his name. Who do, who does those? Who did Legion and all that? Um, yeah, yeah, that guy. You know. <laughs> uh, well, hey, I'm sure you had some people that you left off the list. Let's get some honorable mentions going on here. Who who did you want to mention but just couldn't crack your top five? Oh, um, well, hi, I mentioned he was, he was as close as you can get. Uh, he, he was really wrestling with, uh, with Hobie Doyle. Yeah. Um, and that's Nicholas Cage's uh, character in Raising Arizona for those who haven't seen that movie. Oh yeah, exactly. Sorry. Yeah. Nicholas Cage, um, Raising Arizona was, was terrific. Um, there's also, um, oh, and I wrote it down. I, I must've, um, uh, Charlie Meadows, John, uh, mm, John Goodman, mm-hmm. Martin Fink is, um, just i mean so good uh rooster cogburn um or actually both rooster and um maddie from true grit because i I just love that movie so much um yeah i think those are those were the four that were really fighting fighting to get in there oh and uh um william h macy's uh oh gosh from from fargo um yeah jerry lundegaard jerry lundegaard yeah um I mean, his breakdown scene is just such a such a great moment where he, where he, where he finally kind of you see him snap when he's getting interrogated. Uh, yeah, just a tremendous performance. Yeah, I I considered all kinds of people from Fargo. Steve Buscemi's character is great. Carl. Uh, yes. I I even thought about putting Mike Yamagita on here before I went back and rewatched A Serious Man because that character is so great in a tiny role. But, you know, I wanted just one from Fargo. Um, in addition to what we already mentioned, Albert Finney as Leo in Miller's Crossing. Great oh, character. Yes. Uh, I had Chad Feldheimer from Burn After Reading, Brad Pitt's character. He's <laughs> just like really memorable in that movie. And then I was surprised neither one of us had uh, anybody from The Big Lebowski. And I 
I, I'm not a huge fan of that movie, but the one character that I really almost considered putting on my list was Tara Reid's character, Bunny Lebowski. She's just hilarious in a very small role. Yeah, she is. I, I'm actually with you. I'm I'm not a huge Lebowski fan. Um, I feel I'm glad we agree because I feel like that's almost blas- blasphemous. But like, <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think it is. It is, but there's. I mean, gosh, when you look at their filmology or filmography, um, it it's good. I have nothing against it, but you, you kind of stack it up against the Fargos and the and the True Grits and Lou Ellen Davis and et cetera. Like it's it's hard to really. It's fun, but like it's hard to get that to really stand out to me. Yeah, it's. I feel the same way. It's one of those films where I watched it once and I'm like, I, I just, I don't get it. And then I waited years and then I went back to rewatch it to maybe, maybe think maybe I was in a bad mood that day or maybe I just, you know, wasn't picking up on what they were putting down. And I watched it again and I still it doesn't doesn't resonate with me for some reason. Yeah, I've I've tried a few times and it just doesn't 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 hit me the way their other movies. I mean, I. I still enjoy watching it. You know, I'll put it on. I still like it. And it's still just just a fun, you know, uh, well-done movie to watch, you know. But, like, yeah, it just doesn't hit me the way, like, I put in A Serious Man will hit me. You know, I mean, a whole completely different type of movie. But even, like, A True Grit or A New Country, No Country or whatever, you know, it just doesn't have that resonance. Just kind of not for me. Totally. Awesome list. We got some great recommendations for people. Speaking of recommendations, we got to tell people where to find your stuff, where to watch your stuff, where to read your stuff. Obviously, the links will be in the show notes, but um, we want people to watch Revealer right now. That is on Shutter. You can watch that. Is there a a Blu-ray of Revealer? Uh, Weirdly, no. There's a DVD, but I don't know the thinking that it went into not having a Blu-ray. But the, the weird thing, you know, the weird thing is that like I'm really glad it's out at all because not not a lot of stuff is coming out on physical media anymore and that's I know. it's funny we were trying to push back on blu-ray and not in a not in a bad way but like people who were like in between were sort of like you know you should be, be glad this thing's coming out physically at all and we're like oh right <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that, that part is strange like i was just talking about fargo seasons one and two were on blu-ray season three was only on dvd I yeah I don't I really wish I knew if it's like a cost thing or or if it's easier or whatever it is that that makes people do that or maybe they can sell more because maybe there's people out there who haven't converted to Blu-ray somehow. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I guess so. I don't. I just I don't know what the logic is there, but um, it's it's fascinating because yeah, there's some things that just come out on DVD, and yeah, <laughs> very puzzling as to why. Well, you can stream it on Shutter, or you can pick up that DVD if you want to. But um, either way, watch Revealer, and then what else should people be buying from your uh, from the the writing side of things? Um, so yeah, I mean, Barbaric would be great. You know, that's that's my Vault comic series. Um, I have um, a, a horror series called The Plot that's uh, that's out. I have uh, my uh, a Stranger Things graphic novel Kamchatka just came out. That's kind of ties into um, the Russian side of Stranger Things. If you if you watch the series, you know there's things going on in Russia with Demogorgons as well, and it kind of it, it's tapping into that what's happening over there, um, and especially in season four. That kind of um, there's some really cool angles that they do with uh, with the Russian. Uh, research into the upside down and and things that are going on that we learned um and it doesn't have any of the the kids you know so it's 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 its very own unique standalone story um yeah i really loved working on that one that just came out in graphic novel as well that's exciting that's awesome 
Oh, thank you. Yeah, I um, I'm really I'm re I really love that one. I really uh, I it, it I love working on Stranger Things. I've been doing it for a while now, but like being able to like there's something freeing about like not having to write the kids as great as they are, but because yeah. there's just no time between seasons. There's very little stones that are left unturned in the actual television show. Sure. Yeah. Like where, where could you go with those? It's not going to be in the next season of, uh, of stranger things, you know? Yeah. That's right, awesome. Right. Exactly. So, so being able to be like, you know, we're going to go a whole different, we're going to Russia. So <laughs> that's dope. Very freeing. <laughs> Links to everything force five and Michael Marisi will be in the show notes here. Make sure to pick up a copy of barbaric volume two. The date on that is May 23rd of 2023. You can pick that up May 23rd or right now go into your local comic store and pick up Barbaric Volume 2. Speaking of support, executive producers on this episode include Peter Beta from the Middle Class Film Class podcast. Go listen to that. Musa Mahmood, Rupert Bumblestein, Ryan Goland of the New World Pictures podcast, another great show, and Carlos Mota. Thank you so much for your support. If you want to be a producer on this show, head to patreon.com backslash force5. And uh, if you don't want to be a producer, but you still want to support, I have different tiers. And if you can't spare five bucks a month, hey, no problem. There's still a way. Take two minutes. Review this show wherever you're listening. Just do it right now. Pause. Review. Give me stars. And tell your friends about the show. Those two free, simple things. They help the show audience grow and they help me out. So do that for me. Theme songs today come courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go watch some amazing Coen Brothers films. Thank you.